Hello, this is Tom Stever with Soil Smart, a podcast from the Soil Health Partnership. In our podcasts, we're talking soil health, why it matters, the ag practices that foster it, and the farmers who live it. Today, we're talking to Brian Ryberg about keeping the stubble, the benefits of reducing tillage, and leaving residue in the field. Brian, I want to talk to you about residue. Keep the stubble, benefits of reducing tillage and leaving residue in the field. Tell me about your farm and its history. So we're a corn, soybean, sugar beet operation. Uh, my dad began raising sugar beets in the mid to late 60s, and they've been, been around our farm forever. I'm actually currently on the board of our local co-op in southern Minnesota, Beet Sugar Co-op. Served there for three years and got elected for another three. So her interest in cover crops started there because uh, after a sugar beet harvest, there's absolutely no residue left on the surface. And we seem to have had open winters the last three, four, five years and not getting a lot of snow cover and seeing a lot of wind erosion. And so about five years ago, we started with the idea of seeding cereal rye immediately after sugar beet harvest and to try and get some germination and growth in the fall to help that wind erosion. But also in the spring with some high winds, we would have times when you'd have uh, wind storms of black dirt that would cut our corn off to some extent, even uh, even if it was up three, four inches tall. And so we were very successful with the cereal rye the first two years. Last fall in 2017, we didn't get a lot of growth in the fall, but immediately in the spring, as it germinates at about 36 degrees, that cereal rye grows about six inches a week and, and gets us up and gets us some protection. And uh, then we have made our strips in that, and so we plant directly into our strips in the spring and have found that to be very successful. I understand that you've been turning heads in that part of the state with the strip till, as you've been explaining, and also interseeding cover crops. So describe what you're doing in that regard. So our transition in the strip till has is, is, uh, yeah, been a, an eye-opener in that area. We're conventionally tilled ground in Renville, Sibley County. Um, and I tell people farmers want it black and fast. I mean, there's big equipment, things got to go, but it's got to be black. And we've kind of gone against the grain and seen what uh, cover crops can do and what some strip tillage can do for our soil structure. And so we started with the strip tillage and then kind of off the feeling we were getting from the cereal rye broadcasting extribute harvest, we introduced cover crops into a row crop operation, and we interseed in our corn fields as we side dress nitrogen at about that V4 to V6 stage, so early June, and we've done a five to eight way mixes and still trying to tweak that to get to what we like, but we get the cover crop established that early time and get some growth on it. It'll get to be maybe six inches tall and kind of go through summer dormancy. And then as the leaves start to fall and that canopy opens up, as we get closer to harvest, those cover crops 
kicked in again with some growth and so by the time we harvest corn our goal is to have cover crops out there that are now 10 to 12 inches tall and and are suppressing some weeds are feeding the biology in the soil helping with root structure a lot of just very positive things and we've noticed a really quick change in our soils that are for the better and has been a real good thing as we've experienced three wet falls in a row now and we've uh, been able to put heavy machinery on our farms and not have the deep tracks uh, the soils have adjusted so they carry that heavy loads a lot better and we're getting better water infiltration so seeing a change in just a few years. Some farmers in that area still use moldboard plows in heavy tillage. Compare that with what you're doing, Brian. Yeah, we have a few that are still doing some deep tillage with a plow or even with the, with the ripper, disc ripper style. There's a lot of that being done. As we've experienced these wet falls, I've heard just many comments from good friends of mine. Uh, one, in fact, that they still moldboard plow and, and just complain that they were stuck all the time and couldn't carry the loads and those type of things, leaving deep tracks, and and yet they were pattern tiled. And uh, what we found through the cover crops and some field days we held on our farm and and taking water infiltration tests between different types of tillage practices is that moldboard plow seals off and creates that hard pan and that water just can't escape. And with our reduced tillage system, Together with the cover crop roots penetrating that ground, uh, we have a more porous space, some more more aggregates to support the weight, but allow the water to go through. And so, as some naysayers and neighbors have watched what we're doing, they're starting to come around and ask some positive questions and give us good comments. And so, uh, we like to feel we're kind of a leader in the community and trying to protect ourselves for the next generation. Prevailing thought might be that cover crops can't work that far north. What are some of the concerns about cover crops up there? Yeah, there's been a lot of concern about just getting something established. And in our part of the country, I think it's key that we start in that early June time frame to get something going. Um, there has been some work done on aerial seeding at the beginning of September, late August, that type thing. And that's been kind of hit and miss as to the coverage they get and what growth they get. We actually tried some on a farm this year that we didn't get interceded because it was extremely wet at that time. We got a little bit established, but we don't have near the growth that we do from the June seeding. The negative that I would say in our operation were 22-inch rows because of the sugar beet. So we get canopy closure that much faster so that Getting a cover crop established is just that much tougher. So we had a variety of results this fall again. Mostly good results yet, but we can see where we had really good corn and just healthier plants and more canopy. We had less cover crops that survived that summer dormancy. So how do you work around the challenges of that short fall and the need for tillage to dry and warm the soil? Well, that's where our step till comes in, I guess. We're set up, and my nephew runs the, the strip-till machine for us, so we basically try to chase the combine to try and get that tillage pass done because 
In reality, we're doing our fall tillage, we're doing our fertilizer application, and our spring tillage all in that one pass. But it's obviously critical that we get that done. Our first concern as we started in this transition is, are we going to get that done on a timely basis? And we pull a 24-row, 22-inch soil warrior, and he's running 7.5 to 10 miles an hour. So we can do from three to 400 acres a day. And we were not able to do that, pulling a disc ripper and so on. So we can really cover ground fairly fast, and uh, it's worked out real well. What are the savings that you see in fuel and other input resources from what you're doing? Sure. We burn about six-tenths of a gallon per acre uh, doing our strip-till pass in the fall. Prior to that, we were raising a lot of corn on corn when the corn market was so high. So we were following our combine with a Wishick disc and then a disc case IH disc ripper after that. And so three heavy tillage passes, and we were probably burning three gallons an acre in those two trips and just really hard on equipment, hard on soils. And so we don't miss that. We've gone from having all oh, five, six guys most of the time in the in the fall and, and spring to just three of us. Springtime, each of my guys run a planter, and I'm kind of the gopher, and together as a team, we plant about 4,000 acres without any extra help. So really made a difference in labor savings and fuel savings. So you can see in your bottom line that this is helping. Absolutely. I get comments from my banker, real pleased in, in the results we're seeing, and and the input savings and so on. We're cutting back just a little bit on our P&K because we're basically putting it in a band right in that root zone system. So we're getting a little savings there. But we also think as we go forward, we're going to see more yield increase because our soils are changing and and we're keeping that fertility where it needs to be. And so we just really believe we're going to see a yield bump in that. So you're seeing an increase in organic matter, are you? Yeah, we're not so much worried about the organic matter in our areas. We're pretty high to start with. We're oh, 6 to 12 in organic matter, which is extremely high. So we have really good soils that way. Some areas I know that's a, a big plus and a big reason for doing this. But in our case, I think it's just feeding that biology in the soil, getting those nutrients to kind of get released and um, being able to take advantage of that. So what's your motivation for becoming a part of the Soil Health Partnership? Our uh, interest in soil health, I attended a field day from another soil health participant in southern Minnesota a year ago, Brian Beagler, and just became interested in some education and, and some tools to be available to us as we still learn about the value of the cover crops and return on investment. I guess that's still kind of up in the air for me. I'm, I'm trying to assess in a poor farm economy right now the value of spending $10, $15, $20 an acre on cover crop seed. And as I looked at the return on that input, how can I put a value to that that's going to show up in my cash flow? We know what it's doing for soil biology and soil structure but we still have to see an economic return on that investment. And so I think the plots we've set up this year with soil health and and we'll continue to work on 
we're hoping to put some dollar signs to that. And I've been uh, bugging university people and other organizations that are working with these cover crops to try and help us put some financial return to that. And so our goal is at the end of our three-year stint with Soil Health and and uh, getting to know some other people that are working on the same type projects to, to be able to answer that question as to what is our financial return. Otherwise, how has your experience been with the Soil Health Partnership? Great. They've been very helpful. We're just kind of getting in the, the mix of things now. Our area person is, is wanting our yield information now as we slow down here and so we can dissect our plot information a little bit better. And so we'll go through that this coming winter and then lay out a plan for the coming year. But looking forward to meeting other participants with Soil Health. Um, they're having a summit, I think, in St. Louis in January that we hope to attend and get the bounce ideas off of some other growers. And just to have that network out there, I think, is going to be really valuable going forward. I would challenge anybody that's having some thoughts about changing their operation and, and exploring the cover crops or or some reduced tillage thing, I think try it. Take take a 40-acre field and designate that one to your research farm and, and just try some different things. I think we're all afraid of taking the plunge and, and trying something different than it's been done in the last 20 years that we've been comfortable with, but I think there's really things we can learn out there and in the end just be better stewards of the land. Thanks for joining us for Soil Smart. To find more podcasts and information from the Soil Health Partnership, go to soilhealthpartnership.org or subscribe through iTunes or Google Play.